Chapter 8 Did a higher power help Eric Clapton and Mary Carr stop drinking? Holy Mother, hear my cry. I've cursed your name a thousand times. I felt the anger running through my soul. Holy Mother can't keep control. Eric Clapton in his song, Holy Mother. If you told me even a year before that I'd wind up whispering my sins in the confessional or on my knees saying the rosary, I would have laughed myself cockeyed. More likely pastime? Pole dancer, international spy, drug mule, assassin. Mary Carr, in her memoir, Lit. During Eric Clapton's many suicidal moments, when wealth and fame and his music were no longer enough, he was sustained by one thought. If he killed himself, he would no longer be able to drink. Alcohol was his great enduring love, supplemented by serious affairs with cocaine, heroin, and just about any kind of drug he could get his hands on. When he first checked himself into the Hazelden Clinic in his late 30s, he suffered a seizure during detox because he didn't warn the medical team that he'd been taking Valium, which he'd considered the ladies' drug so minor it wasn't worth mentioning. Clapton remained sober for several years after that stint in rehab. But then, one summer evening near his home in England, he drove past a crowded pub and had a thought. My selective memory, as he puts it, told me that standing at a bar in a pub on a summer's evening with a long, tall glass of lager and lime was heaven, and I chose not to remember the nights on which I had sat with a bottle of vodka, a gram of coke, and a shotgun, contemplating suicide. He ordered the beer, and before long he was back to binges and suicidal feelings. On one particularly low night, he started work on Holy Mother, a song pleading for divine help. He hurt his career and wrecked his marriage, but he couldn't stop drinking even after being seriously hurt in a drunk driving accident. The birth of his son inspired him to return to Hazelton, but toward the end of his rehab, he still felt powerless to resist the bottle. Drinking was in my thoughts all the time, he writes in his autobiography, Clapton. I was absolutely terrified, in complete despair. As he was panicking one night alone in his room at the clinic, he found himself sinking to his knees and begging for help. I had no notion who I thought I was talking to. I just knew that I had come to the end of my tether, he recalls. I had nothing left to fight with. Then I remembered what I had heard about surrender, something I thought I could never do. My pride just wouldn't allow it. But I knew that on my own, I wasn't going to make it. So I asked for help. And getting down on my knees, I surrendered. Since that moment, he says, he has never seriously considered taking another drink. Not even on the horrifying day in New York when he had to identify the body of his son, Connor, who had fallen 53 stories to his death. That night at Hazelton, Clapton was suddenly blessed with self-control. But how he got it is more difficult to explain than how he'd lost it. His problems with alcohol could be described in precise physiological terms. Contrary to popular stereotype, alcohol doesn't increase your impulse to do stupid or destructive things. Instead, it simply removes restraints. It lessens self-control in two ways, by lowering blood glucose and by reducing self-awareness. 
Therefore, it mainly affects behaviors marked by inner conflict, as when part of you wants to do something and part of you does not, like having sex with the wrong person, spending too much money, getting into a fight, or ordering another drink and then another. This is the sort of inner conflict that cartoonists used to illustrate with the good angel on one shoulder and the bad angel on the other. But it's not much of a contest after a few drinks. The good angel is out of commission. You need to intervene earlier to stop the binge before it begins, which is no problem when there's a staff at a place like Hazelden to do the job for you. But what would suddenly give you the strength to do it on your own? Why did Clapton's decision to surrender leave him with more self-control? An atheist would probably say it was just a change of attitude, he says. And to a certain extent that's true, but there was much more to it than that. Ever since then, he has prayed for help every morning and night, kneeling down, because he feels the need to humble himself. Why kneel and pray? Because it works, as simple as that, Clapton says, repeating a discovery that reformed hedonists had been reporting for thousands of years. Sometimes it happens instantly, as with Clapton or St. Augustine, who reported receiving a direct command from God to stop drinking, whereupon all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And sometimes it takes a while, as with a supremely cynical agnostic like Mary Carr, the author of The Liar's Club, her best-selling memoir of growing up in an oil refinery town in East Texas. Her mother, who married seven times, was an alcoholic who once set her daughter's toys on fire and tried to stab her to death, according to the memoir. Carr grew up to become a successful poet and to struggle with her own alcoholism. After one binge that ended with her car spinning out of control across a highway, Carr resolved to remain sober and dutifully followed the Alcoholics Anonymous advice to seek a higher power. She put a cushion on the floor and knelt for the first time in her life to say a prayer, at least her version of a prayer. The best she could come up with was, Higher power, where the fuck have you been? She still didn't believe in any kind of deity, but she did decide to keep offering thanks every evening for remaining sober. About a week later, as she writes in her memoir Lit, she expanded her nightly prayer by listing other things for which she was grateful, and then mentioning some things she wanted, like money. It takes me a full five minutes to shut up begging, she recalls. And it sounds crazy to say it, but for the first time in about a week, I don't want to drink at all. She went on being skeptical about a higher power, and when members of her AA group urged her to surrender, she protested. But what if I don't believe in God? It's like they sat me in front of a mannequin and said, fall in love with him. You can't will feeling. Religion was so irrational, and yet, when she found herself desperately craving a drink at a cocktail party for the New York literati at the Morgan Library, she retreated to the ladies' room, went into a stall, and irrationally sank to her knees to pray. Please keep me away from a drink. I know I haven't been really asking, but I really need it. Please, please, please. Just as with Clapton, it worked for her. The primal chattering in my skull has dissipated as if some wizard conjured it away. That wizardry can be especially hard to understand for agnostics, a group that includes us. We're both lapsed Christians who don't spend much time on our knees praying to any higher power, 
either at home or in church. But after looking at the data, we have no trouble believing there's some kind of power working at 12-step meetings and religious services. Although many scientists are skeptical of institutions that promote spirituality, and psychologists for some reason have been particularly skeptical of religion, self-control researchers have developed a grudging respect for the practical results. Even when social scientists can't accept supernatural beliefs, they recognize that religion is a profoundly influential human phenomenon that has been evolving effective self-control mechanisms for thousands of years. Alcoholics Anonymous couldn't have attracted millions of people like Eric Clapton and Mary Carr without doing something right. Does a belief in a higher power really give you more control over yourself? Or is something else going on? Something that even non-believers could believe in? The Mystery of AA With the exception of organized religion, Alcoholics Anonymous probably represents the largest program ever conducted to improve self-control. It attracts more problem drinkers than do all professional and clinical programs combined, and many professional therapists routinely send their clients to AA meetings. Yet social scientists still aren't exactly sure what AA accomplishes. It's hard to study a decentralized organization without systematic records. AA's chapters operate autonomously and, of course, insist on members remaining anonymous. The local chapters follow the same general 12-step program, but these steps weren't systematically devised. The number of steps was initially chosen to match the number of Christ's apostles. A researcher would want at the very least to test the 12 steps one at a time to see which ones, if any, have an effect. AA members are fond of comparing alcoholism to diseases like diabetes, hypertension, depression, or Alzheimer's, but the analogy is problematic. Sure, there are physiological aspects of alcoholism. Some people seem genetically predisposed to it. But going to AA is nothing like going to the hospital. Diabetics and hypertensives don't treat their condition by sitting around offering one another encouragement. As various skeptics have observed, Clinicians do not think that depressed people would benefit from spending time attending meetings with other depressed people. The progression of most diseases does not directly depend on people repeatedly taking voluntary, self-destructive actions. No one can suddenly make a firm decision to abstain from heart disease or Alzheimer's. Alcoholism is more complicated, and these complexities have left researchers puzzling over the contradictory results from studies of AA. Some say the lack of consistent evidence casts doubt on AA's efficacy. Others say researchers just haven't figured out how to factor out all the confounding variables. AA's defenders note that alcoholics who frequently attend AA meetings tend to drink less than ones who attend infrequently. But the critics wonder about cause and effect. Does frequent attendance make people more likely to abstain? Or does abstinence make people more likely to keep attending? Perhaps the ones who fall off the wagon are too ashamed to keep showing up. Or perhaps they simply started off with less motivation and more psychological problems. Despite these uncertainties, researchers have found some evidence that AA works. When two things go together and researchers want to know which one causes the other, they sometimes try to track them over time and see which comes first, assuming that causation moves forward across time so the cause precedes the effect.
After tracking more than 2,000 men with drinking problems for two years, a team led by John McKellar of Stanford University concluded that attendance in AA meetings led to fewer future problems with drinking, and not the reverse. They found no evidence that the presence or absence of drinking problems affected attendance at meetings later on. Moreover, the benefits of AA remained even after taking into account the men's initial level of motivation and psychological problems. Other researchers have likewise concluded that AA is at least more effective than nothing. The failure rate among members is high. It's normal for them to relapse periodically, but they usually resume abstinence. In fact, AA seems to be at least as effective as professional treatments for alcoholism. Project MATCH, a large-scale research project in the 1990s, tested the theory that all treatments work but not equally well for everyone. Presumably, some people should do better in AA, while others should benefit from professional treatment. Some alcoholics in the project were assigned to take part in AA, while others underwent one of two clinical programs administered by experts, cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational enhancement therapy. Some alcoholics were randomly assigned, while others were matched to the treatment type that was deemed best for them. Several years and millions of dollars later, it turned out that all the treatments were about equally effective and that there was very little benefit from trying to match people to the optimal treatment. In fact, it wasn't even clear that any of the treatments were better than nothing because the project didn't include a control group receiving no treatment, so there was no way to tell if the people would have done just as well on their own. All in all, then, AA seems to be at least as good as, if not better than, professional treatments costing much more. Even if researchers haven't figured out exactly what it does, we can point to some familiar ways in which AA appears to help. We know that self-control starts with setting standards or goals, and we can see that AA helps people set a clear and attainable goal. Do not have a drink today. AA's mantra is one day at a time. Self-control depends on monitoring, and AA offers help there, too. Members get chips for remaining sober for certain numbers of consecutive days, and when they get up to speak, they often start by saying how many days they have been sober. Members also choose a sponsor, with whom they are supposed to remain in regular, even daily contact, and that, too, is a powerful boost for monitoring. There are also a couple of other explanations for the correlation between attending AA meetings and drinking less. The less inspiring explanation is warehousing, to borrow a term used by some skeptical sociologists to explain what high school does. They see school as a kind of warehouse that stores kids during the day, keeping them out of trouble so that its benefits come less from what happens in the classroom than from what doesn't happen elsewhere. By a similar logic, evenings spent attending AA meetings are not spent drinking. We think it unlikely that warehousing accounts for the entire benefit of AA, or even the majority, but it undoubtedly contributes something. The other, more uplifting explanation is that the meetings offer social support. Like everyone else, alcoholics and drug addicts are capable of remarkable feats of self-control in order to gain social acceptance. In fact, that desire for peer approval is often what got them in trouble initially. Most people don't enjoy their first taste of alcohol or tobacco. Most people are scared to put unfamiliar drugs into their bodies. 
It takes real self-discipline to inject yourself with heroin the first time. Teenagers will disregard everything, their own fears, their parents' warnings, physical pain, the possibility of going to jail or dying, because they're convinced that social acceptance requires them not only to take risks, but to do so in a cool, seemingly unconcerned manner. They exert self-control to overcome their inhibitions and more self-control to hide their negative feelings. When the young Eric Clapton went with friends to a jazz festival in rural England, he drank enough at a pub to start dancing on tables, and that was his last memory until he woke up the next morning by himself in the middle of nowhere. I had no money. I'd shit myself. I'd pissed myself. I had puked all over myself, and I had no idea where I was, he recalls. But the really insane thing was, I couldn't wait to do it all again. I thought there was something otherworldly about the whole culture of drinking, that being drunk made me a member of some strange, mysterious club. That's the negative side of peer pressure. The positive side comes from craving acceptance and support from people with different desires, like the members of the AA groups who helped Clapton and Carr stay sober. The people at those meetings may ultimately matter far more than the 12 steps or the belief in a higher power. They may even be the higher power. <laughs>